Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. Yeah, this is a letter here from the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Recognizing the Troopers as the winningest team in professional football history. But when you see this stuff, it like comes to life. This is trapped in historical limbo. All this stuff was just trapped. Nobody knew about it. I'm not sure that we were ever going to get the story out until this moment right now. My friend of mine, uh, she says, hey, they're got a football team going for girls they're gonna you, know, you want to go try out with me and i went mm-hmm, okay girls didn't participate in sports girls just wore dresses and looked cute and looked for husbands people thought it was powder puff football until they came to a game five one five two hundred and ten pounds heart of a lion you talking about heart coach gave me a helmet and shoulder pads and said hit her okay by sunday i was either on crutches or i could barely walk we did a lot of hitting Nothing like they do now. <laughs> Isn't it funny? I said, girl, you're going to eat this nail polish before this day is over. We were unstoppable. It was picture perfect. It was unbelievable. We had more to prove. Never be another football team like the Toyota Troopers. Other teams tried. No one else could do it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, now, how are you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. And yes, indeed, this is uh, what we like to call Good Seats Still Available, the curious little weekly, if you can believe it, podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Uh, we've been doing this for, geez, I don't know, almost five years now, maybe a little more than five years. And, uh, the stories just keep on coming. Thank you for coming back and finding us and hopefully some, uh, some interestingness, uh, of a a major variety coming your way, uh, this week. Our guest is Steve Guinan. He, the author of the recently released book, uh, about a topic that we've danced around a little bit, uh, in a couple of previous episodes, uh, it's around the topic of women's professional football. Yes, the real thing. Uh, episodes number 238 in particular uh, around uh, the National Women's Football League um, uh, with our pals Frankie and Lindsay. Uh, and uh, episode number 154 with our old pal Olivia Kwan, uh, where we talked about one of those franchises named the Houston Hurricanes, H-E-R-R. This week we're going to talk about another one of those teams from uh it was also it was part of the National Women's Football League in the uh, mid 70s which was uh what 74 through uh well it kind of soldiered on until 88 but it kind of really 
the, T- the Toledo team didn't uh, last further until 1979 when stuff kind of uh, started to fragment uh, from the NWFL. But it also was preceded by, as we've learned in our previous episodes, uh, something called the Women's Professional Football League in 1965 through 73. Uh, a guy by the name of Sid Friedman, sort of uh, in sort of exhibition format-like, uh, some would argue almost uh, exploitative. Uh, but the Toledo Troopers is the team that we're going to be talking about this week. And the book that Steve has out just came out last week as we record this called We Are the Troopers, the Women of the Winningest Team in Pro Football History. And that's just one of the angles because that's an eyebrow raiser right there. Winning is team in professional football history. You're not even truncating that to women's? No, indeed. Uh, and uh, it's uh, a fascinating story, both the league, professional women's football in the 70s, uh, as well as this team uh, specifically in Toledo. If you grew up in the mid-70s, you probably had uh, a pretty good idea about what this team was, who they were, what they were all about. Uh, you may have even gone to a couple of games. You may even be familiar with some of their um, uh, their famous uh, players. I mean, uh, if, for example, um, you look at a person like Linda Jefferson, who uh, by all accounts was the face of this league in its entirety, let alone the, uh, the troopers. Uh, this was a woman that uh, was an outstanding athlete on a whole bunch of different fronts and even came in third place one year in the superstars on ABC. Um, but they were also, uh, a team that was, uh, well-liked and well, uh, regarded in Toledo in the sports realm, uh, good, good press coverage. Uh, there were a few games that were even on television, a, b- a bunch of games that were uh, broadcast on radio, pretty well attended too, despite the, uh, largely high school stadia that they were part of. And boy, oh boy, were they dominant. Uh, we're talking about a team that literally, uh, they're, with the possible exception of a team called the Oklahoma City Dolls, which I, I guess was about the closest thing to a rival that they they had because they had to split the, the championship of the NWFL in 1976 with that team. Um, aside from that, Toledo uh, was well, – they were undefeated from 1971 and 1972 in their WPFL years – and they were undefeated through 73, 74, and 75. Uh, and they were the champions of the NWFL in the first three years of that league. Um, in 1976, they split the championship with a loss and a tie uh, with uh, to the Dolls, with the Dolls. But in 77, they regained their championship uh, form by going 8-0 and uh, winning the title again. Uh, they lost the championship to the Dolls in 1978 with that one loss. Um, and then they lost uh, a division championship in 79. But for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years out of their, geez, nine-year existence, they won or at least, or shared the title. And they lost in their, their entire uh, life only four times with one measly tie. 58 times they went out there and won. Now, uh, you could conjecture about, okay, the quality of the play and, and, and all that stuff and, and how big of a deal that was relative to the NFL and, you know, the, the annals of pro football history. But I, th- there's no mistaking this is a, an accomplishment uh, and then some. And as you'll learn in this conversation with, uh, with Steve in a, few, in a few moments, and as you've heard with uh, our previous conversations about this 
uh, women's professional football thing in the 70s, where it kind of really got its first pro uh, leggings, shall we say, or, or legs. Um, the, uh, the, the intensity and the play was very real. We're talking about pads and helmets, the whole bit. And um, it's also very interesting that women's professional football at that level and with that type of play, tackle and, and all of that, never kind of really went away. There, there are a couple of leagues now, call them pro, call them semi-pro, but there is absolutely a real fabric of women's pro football. Now, we get into some uh, interesting uh, uh, sidelights here in this conversation uh, about perhaps where that might go in in the years to come. Um, you know, there's just been ex an explosion of mainstreaming, I guess, if you will, of women's pro sports uh, on television and in and, and, and arenas and all that stuff of 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 late. And uh, could this be the moment in time where the professional tackle version of pro football for women uh, comes back into maybe some semblance of more uh, mainstream and widespread national uh, professionalism? Um, there, there's, you know, the NFL, uh, for a number of different reasons is, is putting a lot of, uh, promotional oomph behind, uh, flag football, uh, which could be a, a natural adjunct as well, uh, for a bunch of different reasons for, for women to be taken seriously, uh, at this level, regardless, the idea of pro football or football generally and women is very much a thing. And um, as is not a new concept, and that's going to kind of be our lens as we go back to the mid 1970s, a, a fertile time for challenger and startup and alternate leagues, shall we say? We've known that for for many many episodes and many years of this this program. Uh, but the National Women's Football League and its predecessor, the Women's Professional Football League, uh, and in particular the uh, the dominant and probably most uh, revered and well known and um, uh, uh, worthy of examination franchises uh, during that time, the Toledo Troopers. That's the source and the uh, fo focus of our conversation this week. Our conversation with Steve Guinan coming up in a couple of moments' time. A treat and a learning experience for me, and I'm sure for you, you will enjoy it. I certainly hope so. Um, all right, before we get there, we're not going to do promotional stuff. We're going to kind of self-promote uh, this week. Uh, and uh, we're just going to encourage you to um, we love all your cards and letters and emails and all that kind of stuff. And we appreciate all the good stuff you might say on on social media and, and, and all of that. Uh, but one of the things that you can do to help this show the most uh, short of sending us a uh, <laughs> a monthly a monthly check from something like Patreon. We, we may just do that, by the way. Um, uh, it, it does take a village and it costs some dough to kind of get this show out there. Um, but, you know, we haven't hit you up for dough just yet. It's been five years plus now, and, and we're kind of proud of that. But the one thing you can do, it will cost you a cent, and that is to go rate and review our little show uh, wherever you can, especially on uh, the outsized influential pages of Apple Podcasts. And um, we're, we're excited to say that we've got a nice 4.7 out of a 5 rating, which is pretty good uh, amongst uh, most of the, the fare out there. And uh, by and large, lots of five stars and some great, uh, very nice uh, commentary from from lots of of different po uh, folks. So for example, Disco Dog eighty uh, eight calls it a sports nerd dream podcast. Love, love, love this podcast. Such a fun podcast to binge. Great guests, great content. Blah blah blah. Thanks. That's really nice to say. 
Uh, we appreciate that. Um, CFL America fan uh, late last uh, year said the gold standard of sports history podcast. Well, I don't know about that, but very, very nice. Um, Uncle B67 uh, back in February calls it the original and the best. Uh, best of what? Not quite sure. It's an original, perhaps. Um, so we love all that stuff. That's great. And, and you know, five stars are are are, are certainly welcome. And awesome podcast says Cruyff Best from March of this year. We appreciate that. Hey, but you know, we, we you know, it doesn't mean you have to. You know, if you've got some criticism, go for it. I mean, you know, uh, you, uh, you, you could uh, <laughs> you could you could. How about this four star wonder by the Flying Fox back in July? Hey, great concept, but Jesus, Tim needs to spend time editing his questions. He's a master at taking two minutes to ask a question that should take fifteen seconds at the most. Aside from that, it's an enjoyable podcast. More hockey, please. So there you go. So you can't please everybody, but hey, uh, still asking for requests nonetheless. Just uh, have at it. Yeah, we, you could be honest and maybe fudge the honesty a little bit by uh, uh, helping us tweak those algorithms for sure. Uh, if you have really, you know, scathing criticism, maybe you could just send me an email directly and we can talk about it. Uh, we're at hello at goodseatstillavailable.com. But those five-star ratings certainly do help the algorithm. Other people like you or uh, may be interested in the topics and all that stuff. We appreciate that. And uh, it, again, it doesn't cost you anything to do it. And uh, it certainly would help the show. Uh, short of asking and begging and groveling for dough. So we appreciate that very much. All right. Enough of that self-promotion. Let's get into the conversation, shall we? Let's talk about women's professional football in the 70s. And let's talk about the uh, most uh, uh, outstanding, uh, well-regarded, and uh, dominant teams uh, in that era. Uh, that is the Toledo Troopers. Toledo Troopers, you say it. It's hard to say after a long day of work. Uh, but here it is, our conversation with Steve Guy. And coming up, please, as always, enjoy. This is a topic that we have uh, talked about in previous episodes, uh, we've talked with uh, Olivia Kwan, who uh, has been working on a documentary on the Houston Hurricanes of the NWS sure. NFL, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, the two um, uh, the two writers of uh, the book that just came out a couple of months ago about the uh, National Women's Football League. Just fantastic and and really well researched. But give me a sense of your background uh, and how you your adjunct to this story, because I think you grew up in the area, right? And but it's you're not uh, uh, I, you're not a football historian by trade, right? Right. Well, I grew up in Toledo in the 1970s, and the uh, as I was becoming uh, learning how to read and become a sports fan and following the footsteps of my father, uh, I learned to read the newspaper and I would read about this team called the Toledo Troopers and and watch them on TV. There were a number of news outlets, local news outlets that, that gave the troopers a lot of coverage. They were a winner and why wouldn't you? And then, so they were just kind of in my consciousness at that age. And then the league, they disappeared. There were no stories about the league closing. It just was gone and it was out. It was, you know, just disappeared from memory. And then I happened to meet you know, by chance, the coach's son and through that, the, the coach himself. And it's always been for me just what a curiosity that was growing up in Toledo. And yet this, that the city was behind this team. Who were they? What were they all about? What was the league? What was it? And so I, I, I just it's been with me for a long time. And in many ways, it found me. And 
recent, you know, over the past, you know, maybe 10 years or so, I began to doing more research and just through the process began collecting things, meeting some of the players and, and, and researching. And that's how kind of the, the story of, of the book, We Are the Troopers, was formed. And so I wouldn't call myself exactly a historian, but I'm, I'm a, a writer by training and trade. And uh, this story has just always been close to me in this way. And um, I'm happy that it's getting out there now. And, and I hope people are inspired by it. So this sounds a bit like it's a retroactive sort of rediscovery, perhaps, of maybe your your earlier youth and, and some of the sports inklings that you were uh, experiencing in your youth and having them basically just disappear and whatever happened to. Right. Yeah. In researching the story, I've come across dozens and dozens of headlines and stories that kind of jarred my memory a little like, oh, my gosh, there's that story. I'm sure I remember this one from the Blade or this one from the Detroit Free Press. You know, that's, you know, growing up in that area, those are the papers we were reading. So it was it was a kind of going down memory lane a little like nostalgia. There's nostalgia in it, but there's something more to it, too, in that these women really did this amazing thing and their coaches. And uh, and, um, you know, I hope the book celebrates that. Well, tell me how how this story re-entered your conscience, right? Uh, or your consciousness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you yeah. mentioned the son of a coach, and obviously that coach of this team is very central to this story and, and its success back in the day. Right. I, I, you know, met the coach's son and met the coach and some of the other coaches. And actually, uh, we sat down to write the story. Okay, here's the pitch. It's uh, 1970s women playing football and really being really good at it. Okay. It kind of lends itself to a screenplay and there's something, you know, a sports film kind of thing. And I've, you know, I've written screenplays and I said, let's write a screenplay. We did attempt to, to write it, write the story that way and develop the story that way. And we still are trying, I guess you could say, but you know, that's kind of one iteration of the story, but it, it needed more. And even through that process, I got to meet many of the players and coaches and, and what Carla Miller, who was uh, one of the players, great player for the troopers from 77 to 79, you know, told me, Hey, you have to write the book, go write the book. That's really what the story needs. And, 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 you know, <laughs> I said, you're right. And so I, I don't know, I sat down and, 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 and you know, kind of went back from the very beginning and, you know, really try to tell a, a, a historical document that that narrates all the players involved and all the people who were involved. And, and, and so it kind of took on that way. I, I guess I started the book in earnest in 28, 2017. And, uh, you know, then then here we are. So where do you start this story then? Because, I mean, uh, even before Toledo existed as a franchise, there was mm-hmm. even a league before the league, right? There was this women's professional football league from 65 to 73, which was, I don't know, by many accounts, not even really a league as much as it was, a, I don't know, sort of a showcase of and maybe an exploitation of women playing the man's game by this guy, Sid Friedman. Um, You're right. But, but actually right. Yeah. Part of that, though, mm-hmm. and, and then survived, if you will, going into, I guess, more legitimacy. Yes, I think that's uh, that's the case. And, 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 you know, Sid Friedman is, I give him credit. And as uh, I think Brittany 
or Frankie Delacrita and, and uh, Lindsay Dargangelo do in, in their book about Sid Friedman kind of starting the Women's Professional Football League. But he kind of had a vision of it as, as, as a gimmick and, and that would in some ways exploit the women. You know, he just wanted to, I think, really sell a more what they what, you know, has been termed a lingerie league kind of event. And yes, was it a league? Was it? You know, was it more of a showcase? You know, that's a good point. Um, but then, you know, he, Sid Friedman put an ad in the paper in Toledo in 1971 to start a franchise there. And Bill Stout, who became the coach, uh, saw it differently. He was a football star, a former football star, a washed up former football star uh, who who maybe was attempting, I think, to regain some of his glory. He'd seen some of his 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 uh, former teammates find success, not only in playing football at the college and pro level, but even uh, through coaching. And so football was always in his DNA, and he was going to put together a team of players, men or women, who were really good at football and trained to play football the proper way to play football. And the women took to it. Uh, the players took to it. They, 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 they were excited about getting a chance to play this sport that they never had a chance to play before, let alone any sports, you know, growing up in the fifties and sixties, there weren't as many opportunities to play. And here they are, they get a chance to play good old fashioned, hard hitting, hard knocks football led by the curmudgeon former nose guard who, you know, would just, you know, you know, instill in them, you know, how important it was to, to be conditioned and supremely conditioned and mentally tough so they could succeed in this, you know, really brutal game of football. So he took it in a different direction. And in that, you know, 73, you mentioned, that's when he split with Sid, Sid Friedman and began the National Women's Football League as opposed to the Women's Professional Football League, which was Sid Friedman's, you know, idea. And, and then he partnered with some owners in Texas and in California and started the national women's football league and believed that this could be, you know, with the backdrop of the, the ascendant national football league and the Super Bowl era, they believed that this could be a viable sports, you know, industry like national sports leagues like the the WNBA you know or the or the you know national the the soccer women's soccer association that that exists now so bill stout was not only the uh, the coach but he was also the owner of this enterprise right and and so i i guess i'm really curious as to how and why toledo for example uh, versus other markets for this effort and and why he would want to pursue uh, at least initially, being part of the WPFL when it seems like he would al- he already kind of knew what it was and really kind of what it wasn't this league quote unquote for women. Hmm, uh, that's a good question. I, I think he he you know ultimately saw it as as uh, potentially uh, a national league and. You know, he had this. He had some backers. He had some people who, and, and they were they were at once a curiosity. They were on the Donahue show, and they were getting some national media attention. And but his his story was straight. Like, hey, these aren't these. We're here to play football. Uh, they're really good athletes. Look at Linda Jefferson. She's incredible. 
you, you know, you can't stop her. She can go up against anybody, any female athletes, and she would ultimately uh, in, in the superstars later. But um, not only her, Jefferson, but, but other players, her, her, their, their offensive linemen, their defense, they're just, they were really tough, hard-nosed uh, players who believed in the sport and took to it, I think. And, and found real meaning in being good at playing football. So I think with that in mind, whether it's Toledo, Cleveland or L.A. or, he, you know, he believed he was getting in on the ground floor of something that would grow. And, you know, they took the Toledo whatever identity as really a chip on their shoulder. You know, they're 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 the underdogs. They were designed as a team that was supposed to be a patsy for Sid Friedman's Cleveland team to beat up on. And, you know, turns out that they were actually the best team and they were doing, they were beating everybody from, you know, Dallas to Oklahoma city to, you know, Detroit, Cleveland, Philadelphia, New York. So they, they, you know, they took it, you know, I think they, they, uh, and they got the sport from the city too. They, they, they were, you know, a lot of press, like I said, at the beginning, like uh, the blade and, and other news outlets were really supportive of them and trying to spread the word of, of, uh, of women's football. Now, in some of our previous conversations, uh, some of that press coverage was sort of uh, remembered as and maybe even documented as, uh, shall we say, less than, right? Uh, that the women's game is not nearly as good or as uh, uh, legit, if you will, or uh, the, the angles of, you know, of girls playing the man's game, you know, sort of the, 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 the courtesy article and that kind of stuff. Would you... It sounds to me hmm. like the Toledo team was uh, taken a bit more seriously, not only by the press, but also maybe the fan base. I think that's true. And I think if you were a writer writing in the 70s about women playing football, like in Sports Illustrated, you're going to kind of have, you know, air quotes around what you write in a set or question marks about it. Like, hey, there's this curiosity happening, but we'll give it some ink here. Um, or, or, hey, there's this you know, um, comparison that, that many writers made of Linda Jefferson to OJ Simpson and Walter Payton and other male football stars as a kind of cheeky headline to get, you know, to get people reading. But I think, but if you read further, I think, you know, you, you do find that the writers were really, uh, you know, supportive and, and, you know, of, of the, of the team and, you know, doing their diligence to, to sort of tell the story that, Hey, these women are really good. You know, I think the, the, the reporters who covered the Dallas game, while there weren't many people in the stands, they, um, you know, they, they really said, you know, they, they gave Jefferson a lot of credit, you know, called her a, you know, 135 pound whippet who, you know, diced up the field that they used, you know, they, they, they were, pretty impressed. And like many of the coaches would say, like Bill Stout, only people came out to laugh, but left as fans. So I think when you see them play and you see footage of them, you realize they're really good. You know, they, they, they know what they're doing. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's a pretty potent statement because you, you have to think that too, that it also comes into marketing too. Like, like how do you market? I know this is more of a a, a broader league question, I guess, and, and the, the whole sport itself. But how does one market something like this? I mean, is it to the male football fan? Is it to the female sports enthusiast? Is it is it to families looking for a more affordable way to watch pro football? Is it you know, uh, and any or all of those things, which you know, all of them by themselves and together sound like a huge challenge to market something like this. 
Yeah, yeah, but you know, from the very from the very beginning, that's what sports faces: marketing challenges and leagues rise and fall if they don't get audiences to buy into the narratives, to the storylines, and you know, the World Football League. Remember that in the seventies? What happened to that? Um, I'm like the the ABA American Basketball Association, they, you know, other there's a hockey league kind of the competitor of the NHL that just it just doesn't get the stories, and if you don't get the stories, then you you won't get the following. And I think that 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 the, the the marketers for the for the troopers they really pushed Jefferson as sort of a lightning rod for the league, and they they made headway with with that. Uh, because she was so good of an athlete, truly like the best athlete you've never heard of. And so while they were trying to capitalize on stars, I mean, I mean, look what the NFL did with, with early stars like Joe Namath. Um, I know comes to mind as somebody who, who, who marketers like Sonny Werblin, who was the owner of the jets, put him out front of their team, you know? And so, that's what it's really about. If you can, if you can generate that audience by getting audiences to buy into the narrative of the storylines, I think you're going to, you're going to have followers and you're going to have people come out. So that's what, that's what I think, uh, you know, really women's sports today, um, they're, they're like the WNBA is doing a terrific job of getting their stories out of the, of, uh, of, of the stars today. And, and the, the national women's soccer team too, they're, 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 you know, and some of those players are household names now for the last 10 years. Yeah, for sure. And and I think, uh, you know, we're also talking about the 1970s, right? If you're looking for any decade that was representative of uh, the ultimate in entrepreneurialism when it came to pro sports, it's probably that decade, right? Of the ABA, the WHA, the WHA, yeah. on and on and on. And all of them to a to a league and to a to a, an entity, right, would all, well, you know, would, would try to circle around a star of of sorts, either the, by, by raiding uh, uh, an existing league or perhaps just outright importing somebody from like Brazil, like Pelé in the NASL and soccer at that time. Right. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so let's right. talk, let's talk about Linda Jefferson, because I'm curious not only about her and her story, but how she and why she comes to a fledgling, I don't know, whatever this is, two years, three years in, you know, in this fledgling football thing for women. Um, What's her story? What's her background? How'd she even come into this mix in the first place? Uh, Linda Jefferson was a was just an outstanding athlete, mainly a track star. Those were really the sports you could play in the late '60s, early '70s at Libby High School. She played a version of basketball, you know, where they they only one person is allowed to cross the court, and they had rovers, and that you know three people are. Only, it was just a, a, a watered down version of the sport, but she played that. Uh, she, you know, was a track champion and, you know, in, at the city league and at the state level after she graduated in June of 1972, which was the very month that title nine is sort of written into law. What else, what else is she going to do? You know, what is she going to do? She played softball. There's, there's, you know, she works at a factory, um, and some of she, one of her coworkers said, Hey, you should come out and uh, check out this football thing. And so, she does, and um, her mother refuses to let her play, so she does it in secret. <clears throat> and turns out she's just uh, really good. You know, she's like I said, the O.J. Simpson, the, uh, the Walter Payton, the Barry Sanders of of the sport. Okay, a home run threat every time she touches the ball, 
and she loves it. She she realizes, <laughs> you know, she was a little didn't want to get hit either. She was, you know, wanted to be a wide receiver, just kind of stay in the sidelines. But you know, you really had to get her the ball and see what she could do with it. And she loved the sport, and just it was in her to dominate. She's an incredible competitor. Um, just just to talk to her and look at it. She just, she, she, she wants to really, she's going to beat you. You know, she's going to take you on and, and, and win. She has that fire in her that uh, really, truly only the greatest really have. I don't know. You can just sense it about her. So, and sure enough, it plays out on the field and she's a dominant player and, and that's her sport. So that's what she did. And, and she did it from 1972 to 1979. So, she sustained a number of injuries that kind of slowed her down. I think that she, she had Olympic aspirations as well for the 76 games to be on the basketball team. She was part of a, like an Ohio league um, that, that played around the state and, and in the, the offseason for football, she played on, on a basketball in, in a basketball league in Ohio and, you know, won this amateur state title and then didn't make the cut for the Olympics. So, I think um, that was disappointment, but it was one of the reasons that she didn't take the money when she won the superstars because she wanted to remain, maintain her amateur status. So when she came in third in the superstars, the ABC program, she, she left her money there and, you know, didn't take the money so she could make the Olympic team. Well, she didn't make it. So the next year she took the money and, you know, and bought a Volkswagen rabbit with it. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the superstars, right? Because that's actually was the path for a number of different, uh, standouts in sort of fledgling or, or new leagues like Kyle Rowe Jr., for example, in the North American Soccer League was a discovery that most people ha- had not heard of or had never seen before. He wound up winning a couple of those. Uh, there were a couple of players like um, Mary Jo Plepler and, and a few others in, in, in volleyball, right? The International Volleyball Association. Uh, so it, it's very interesting how those, uh, I think, I think yeah. a pole vaulter won it the first, like a, a, a an Olympic pole vaulter was the champion the first time they did it. Yeah, uh, so, I, yeah, the, to your point, like maybe uh, those athletes on the periphery, this was an opportunity for them to make some money and, and to, to capitalize on their athleticism and, and make a name for themselves and maybe make a commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's uh, it's interesting how that did or, or didn't necessarily translate into uh, into the the leagues in which these players were performing and their success. Now, obviously, the leagues have to perform and the teams have to do well and be able to draw people, right? But, but I guess the question there is, how does Linda Jefferson, you know, uh, somewhat quickly just stand out? And I guess maybe, what's your sense of how and how quickly she was seen as a marketing tool, if you will, because. She's obviously the front and center face of this. And I mean, the, the, the Phil Donahue show with, and, and all these, you know, the superstar stuff and all these, Dinah Shore. I mean, she was she was out there a lot. And I'm sure that wasn't by accident. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And uh, Owens Corning, the Toledo headquartered uh, fiberglass company, uh, shuttled her around, paid her stipend to go and speak to young girls or young children about the importance of athletics. She traveled to L.A. and New York and other places, Atlanta. Uh, on the, you know, in the, in the Learjet to, to, you know, to meet and talk to high school. So she was a spokesperson um, for, for the sport. They did have her out front. You mentioned the Dinah Shore show. She was on that with Anthony Davis, 
who the USC star who just uh, who was second in Heisman voting. And I think he signed a million dollar contract with the a world football league team. So he went the world football league route and they were together on the show. Here's a guy who was a football star who had just scored four touchdowns or five touchdowns in a big game against Notre Dame. And he signed a million dollar contract right alongside Linda Jefferson, who also had just scored five touchdowns in a rival game. And she makes $25 a game, you know? So I think they were, yes, she was up front and center and she did believe that it would translate into sponsorship money. It was really the app. Like what, what is she, you know, what is she going to do? She's going to support, you know, the initiatives to get the word out. And I think she was really good at it. She was well-spoken and, you know, had a, had a, you know, a a really charismatic presence about her. And, and um, that seems like, you know, you know, she, she, she was, you know, very proud of what she did and, and uh, all her efforts to, to lift the league and to, and to, you know, um, give her, you know, herself opportunities was, was, uh, you know, she's, you know, she has no qualms about, about that. Where were her, where were her teammates or the other players, uh, uh, and staff coming from? How, how was, what was sort of the process by which, uh, talent was being found to populate this quickly and, and amazingly very successful team? Uh, they were, first there was just an ad in the paper and to see who showed up in the first year was, you know, a, a kind of a test run. And then by the second year, I think the word had spread among softball leagues, among, among, re, you know, I don't know, the, the, the word had spread. And by then, you know, the second year, there were a number of players, including Jefferson, who would become staples of, you know, of the, the starting lineup for years. Sunday Jones, Gloria Jimenez, Michi Collette, I mean, these are names that that appear really throughout box scores of the troopers throughout their their run. So, you know, these women were factory workers, some were beauticians, some were just convenience store workers, some were, you know, uh, housewives who who just found, you know, hey, there's this cool thing, and there's I'm going to get, you know, my I'm going to get somebody to take the bus over to the practice and see what's going on, and and uh, and uh, you know they. they I don't know. They, they, they were coached up to, to play right and play well. And I think that's what, you know, those, those aspects really launched them to supremacy in this, in the, you know, throughout the league. Yeah. In this book, you, you obviously talk, and this is similar to the other stories we've heard about, say the NWFL and, and some of the, the, the prototypes or the, uh, the, 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 predecessor league with uh, Friedman and, and others is almost this mm-hmm. uh, uh, innate and very deep sense of camaraderie um, almost to the point of uh, they almost didn't necessarily I'm sure they wanted the 25 bucks or the 75 bucks or whatever, but they were there to play. They, they really, I mean, there's a real deep sense of, of wanting to play the game at the highest level for them. And, and and enjoying it uh, thoroughly, b- both as a team and in the competition and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's almost like they didn't need to get paid, if you will. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Like, yeah, sure, they would have they would have liked to get paid more. Uh, who doesn't? Um, it, but but that wasn't what it was about for them. Nor was it about making a statement, really. Um, 
you know, uh, I, I was lucky enough to be part of a reunion when we started this kind of reaching out and, 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 and connecting with the players and coaches back in 2013, we had a reunion and tried to get in touch with everybody who played among the 81 women who suited up as troopers throughout the seventies. And that event, you know, we expected a couple hundred people, maybe a hundred people to show up. It was over 400 people showed up. They had to move the venue because the deck was about to collapse in Toledo. And to, to see them together, you would have thought it was, you know, the 1972 dolphins or heck the, the, the 1980 Steelers, but like these, these women, like were almost war heroes coming back together. They're yeah. Camaraderie almost doesn't do to it justice. There's a sisterhood to what they, you know, to what they lived and that runs so deep in them. And, and um, it, it was whatever happens with a story, you know, to see that I'm, I'm just, um, <clears throat> I'm grateful to be a part of it. And it was really inspiring to see how much it meant to them, uh, even today, to look back on their lives and say, hey, I did this thing with all these other women, and we were really good. No, we were great. We were the, <laughs> we were the best. Um, you know, I, I tell this story about Gloria Jimenez, who played throughout, you know, for eight years on the team. And she said, uh, just by chance, just, you know, the... She, it was kind of a, a candid statement, but she said, you know, I was a Toledo troop and it's the greatest thing I've ever done. You know, that's always struck me as a real tell of what it meant for these women and the camaraderie, like you said, that, that the game brought them. All right. What's this? Prize picks. My goodness. Of course, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks what is it well glad you asked literally it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you can do daily fantasy sports all you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players in a sport or frankly across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection maybe in baseball that's strikeouts uh, they're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, how about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, in basketball, that could be three-point uh, shot attempts made, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes. And you can choose and mix and match sports as well. You don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport. No, you can pick a couple of players in across different sports. And boy, oh boy, when I say different sports, Prize Picks has a wide variety. It's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the NFL and Major League Baseball, all the way into various niche sports. Sports? Sports? No, sports like MMA or disc golf, uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, Try them out. It's really easy, and it's a hell of a lot of fun, and you can win big bucks, too. You can go the flex play model, which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome, and it's uh, fun to play for sure, and that really uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports 
uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And of course, we've got a promo for you as well. So all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device, or go to PrizePicks.com. That's P R I Z E P I C K S.com and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports right now. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepicks.com or on the prize picks app and get that instant deposit match right up to 100 bucks go for it it's a hell of a lot of fun thank you prize picks and now back to our conversation what was the um from what you could tell uh and maybe from what uh, first person memories were what what were game experiences like these were these are largely played at high school venues right in Toledo, I, I'm, I'm assuming, right? right? And, mm-hmm. and like crowds and, and were they among the better supported of the NWFL teams and uh, were they probably the best or were they just the best team? I mean, was it discount or giveaway? I mean, you know, what was, I guess, the, the, the yeah. experience that you mm-hmm. could tell of, of going to a game? Yeah, it, 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 you could, you know, maybe look at the sands and you, you kind of guess from that, from the footage you see. There were some games where, you know, barns, like Friedman's barnstorming era, where he would just get as many people as he can to go out to this event. And it's not, it's on Saturday and here's a ticket or go and, and you maybe pay half at the gate or, you know, and there were, you know, I would say, you know, some estimates say in the thousands, you know, 2000 people would show up at, at, at some of these early games. The Oklahoma City Championship uh, game in '77 and in '78, uh, that's a Taft Stadium in Oklahoma City. Those stands are pretty filled, and reports of like you know 4,000 people attending those games. Those are the bigger, you know, uh, bigger bills. Uh, but maybe maybe a re- maybe a regular season Detroit game in, in Detroit, you know, high school in Detroit, you know, maybe they'll get a couple hundred. So. Um, you know, it, it varied a little bit, but, uh, you know, it's a high school stadium, um, the, you know, with, with, you know, friends and family that, you know, they, they would get, you know, between, you know, some reports, hundreds, but in some cases, the bigger events, thousands. Yeah. It almost seems to me too, I, I the, the website uh, devoted to the team has a couple of, of really interesting, uh, uh, visuals there, including it looks like a couple of even ads uh, featuring some of the players. Uh, they almost like us, some of like mini local heroes in in some respect. It looks like. Yeah, yeah, maybe the uh, the billboard ad. Um, you know that uh, you know they they did what they could to market the team, and um, you know there's you know they ran ads on the radio. They bartered. They they you know got the local stations to get behind them. They had board members who were on local media outlets. Uh, to, you know, find any ways to get the word out. Restaurants had, you know, they used on, on Tuesdays or whatever it was, it was Trooper Day at the Wendy's on, on Woodward where the, you know, if you showed up with a ticket, you get a free meal. They, you know, they did things like that to, to really generate buzz and, and interest and get people to, you know, to believe and believe in the stories. Well, tell tell me uh, maybe how uh, Bill Stout and then later Mike, his uh, son, no, his brother, his brother, his mm-hmm. brother. Um, mm-hmm. I, 
give me a sense. I mean, this was not only a, a good team. This was not only a great team. This was a dominant team by all accounts. I mean, there was there's no question that the Troopers were by far the standard, the best of whatever version of this league existed in the 70s. I mean, that doesn't come by accident. Or, or or was it a happy coincidence that the right people and the passionate coach and, and the right environment in Toledo came together? I think you're right there. It's a, it's a perfect storm of things. The right people, right personnel, right vision, right leadership, and, and, and right to execution. But let's not count out the uh, Oklahoma City Dolls who, you know, were Bill Stout's one loss in his you know, six years of coaching. And then, and then as and then commissioner, he was commissioner for the other, actually seven years coaching, two years commissioner. Uh, his one loss was the Oklahoma city dolls. And they were coached by the, the Reynolds brothers, Mike and Hal Reynolds, who, uh, um, who I think were similar to stout in their approach to preparing the women to play. Oklahoma City, you know, in, in Oklahoma City, Toledo did meet their match. You know, they got beat. Uh, they went out to Oklahoma City in 77. They lost. And then they won the next two uh, in, in, you know, the championship in Toledo and then the championship in in Oklahoma City over the next two years. And that's when Stout, after that, Stout bowed out. He was no longer the coach. He became the commissioner of the league and spent most of his time attempting to get other teams to prepare uh, as professionally and, and as, you know, as detailed oriented as, as stout prepared the troopers. So, you know, he went, proved himself as a coach and then to try to get the league off the ground, he, he was the commissioner for two years. Uh, and then, and then after that, the league folded. It also feels to me that what the dolls, uh, and the troopers uh, were doing in terms of taking this, if you will, seriously, and the play, and 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 dominating, and 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 you know, really committing to this as a sport. That wasn't necessarily reciprocated by all of the other teams in this league, right? There were sort of those that came and went, and maybe didn't take it so seriously, or maybe even had the funding or the interest from their local uh, the local markets. Well, look, if you look at a team like Detroit, you know. They they ran they played you know Toledo twice a year they never won but you're not talking about the Washington Generals here they were they were you know they, they were the close games some were close and some they almost won but for maybe uh, you know um, you know a run back or or I don't know a, a play that could have gone either way a couple of close games but they never won Detroit was a good team and the the players were dedicated to it. Um, and, and, and believed in it, you know, some were kind of part shared in the ownership of the league. And, and, um, so, um, there are also players on Oklahoma city who kind of shared in the ownership kind of admin manager, kind of player type of type of role. And, and they did, they, they, you know, they weren't, they weren't just there to show up. They knew what they were up against and they prepared and they did their, you know, they believed in it. And they got the support, like a team like Detroit, for example, got the support of the Detroit Lions. You know, they they used a lot of Detroit Lions equipment handed down, much Famously, like maybe the, yes. yeah, the yeah the Patriots. You know, are are, are you know are, are the Boston Renegades sort of like sponsor, and and that's one of the reasons one 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 factor I think in 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 the Renegades I think you know resurgence or or dominance now today. 
they have that, you know, the, the NFL behind them and to, to le- give them legitimacy. So, there, you know, it wasn't just Toledo and, and Oklahoma City. I think all the other teams were, you know, were trying to win. And I think that's true today, too. Where, where, how was the financial situation of this team? Because I'm sure winning didn't hurt, and it certainly helped attract <clears throat> attract people to the gate. Um, but you're also mentioning a few of these teams having some, shall we say, outside support. I mean, I, I where were the Browns and or the Bengals in all of this, if if at all, and 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 or, you know, how are they surviving? Because it were, certainly wasn't television rights, and I'm sure they weren't selling out their their high school stadia either right so um where does the money come from to sustain such a arguably probably fledgling enterprise yeah yeah well they didn't they didn't they did not have the support of those organizations uh i think they kind of you know the pros just kind of sat on the sideline watching um they largely they gained they they tried to build revenue through you know, considering this as like a, um, you know, a business and, or, or, you know, they sold stock options to generate cash flow. And, um, you know, so there were a number of investors throughout the National Football League in Dallas and Toledo and Oklahoma City and in California who put up a lot of money to, 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 you know, to make it happen. And those costs went to travel really mainly like traveling is a real, you know, a, a real, challenge for a league uh like this travel and 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 and, you know um room and board for for teams that 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 go on the road i think the last two years of the nwfl it was really regional to the southern division which was texas oklahoma area and then toledo columbus detroit middletown ohio had a team so it became more regional as it shrank and contracted and had a harder time you know bringing teams together across the mississippi and this was legit, like very traditional pro football rules, largely with very, very little exceptions, right? A couple exceptions, but it, you have eleven on eleven, you know, and, and to see to see the footage of it, you think it's, you know, it's like a maybe a, high, a really good high school team. They, the women like to say we're like a Division three college team, and um, I once showed the video of them playing Oklahoma. Trooper showing uh, playing Oklahoma City to a couple of um, ex Oregon football players just to kind of see their reaction, and, and when they found like, like who's this team? They're really good. Like what is this? Like a seventies uh, like a as a pro like a WFL or something? Like no, this is women playing football in the seventies and blown away to see like this is actually women playing. They're they're it, it, it's um you know it's it's a legitimate just like you're watching you know football not the same as the men but. You know, it's it's um, it's this it's 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 women's sports and it's it's um, you know, it's it's hard knocks. It's it's hard nosed 11 on 11 football, couple of rules involving, you know, uh, extra point scoring. Um, but that's about it. It's it's uh, you know, it's good old fashioned American football. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting. It's actually a reverse of the um, uh, the uh, points after uh, a touchdown. Right. I think the the kick was actually awarded. You got two points for actually doing the successful kick versus one point for actually running it in or passing it into the end zone, which is the inverse of what the pro league. That is correct. Yep. And, yep. And, and partly they wanted to put a wrinkle on it. They wanted to make it different. They wanted to distinguish it some, in some ways from the men's game. And so that was probably the most salient rule difference. But other than that, it was, uh, you know, pretty much the same. 
So despite all that success and obviously a, a, a phenomenon of sorts in, in the Toledo and the metro area, what, what, what do you think, maybe some of it's obvious, maybe not, what do you think contributed to the demise of both the team as well as the league by the end of the decade? Because from the, from the league accounts, it looks like there was kind of fractionally uh, uh, fall off of various teams into other groups like the Western League and all that kind of stuff. But I guess, what's your assessment of, of why the league didn't continue in its, that form and the troopers with it? Probably the same reason that leagues since then of women's football, national, you know, around the country have have had a really hard time of unifying at a national level. You know, they became regional. It just became too expensive. You know, as the last two years without Stout as head coach, the Troopers still were, were the best team regionally. They went 13 and four over two years. They did lose to Columbus, like, you know, which was sort of the, you know, maybe a, a harbinger of like, you know, the end of the road for this, this dominant team. And they did lose to Oklahoma City, you know, very late in 1979. Um so those 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 were kind of you know moments that that you know really I think um, you know were harbingers of the end of an era as the decade came to an end and so you know since then there, there's you know been Toledo women's football in Toledo there were the Mustangs and then there was the there was the um, the Furies and then now there's the Toledo Reign so I think you know it's just been really difficult for you know, since then for a lot of, a lot of, you know, teams to unite at a national level, you know, and, and, and really, I think confronting those barriers of travel and, and, and how to finance, you know, and get the stories out. So you're going to have more audiences and more sponsorship. Um, You know, there, there's signs that, you know, you know, maybe there's, there's some, you know, the, the, the women's football Alliance right now is, is, is thriving. I would say it's doing well, but it's got some challenges, um, you know, more so than any other national iteration of women's football, I think uh, in the past few years, uh, led by the renegades. So, you know, they still face those very same, those same problems of, of uniting across, you know, the continent and, and, uh, getting, getting that fan base that, that I think you need to support, uh, a, a lasting, sustainable league. You know, it's also very interesting because it also seems like there's a, a confluence of, of things going on now. I mean, number one, obviously, the just sheer explosion, finally, of, of professional women's sports and, and media coverage of, of substance, right? WNBA, NWFSL, uh, 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 Athletes Unlimited uh, uh, thing is, I mean, et cetera. Uh, just an amazing flourishing, if you will, of, of professional level women's sports and top tier and coverage at that. Second, though, uh, I, you know, it's also interesting you're alluding to it. The, 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 the pro game for women, or at least, even if it's semi-pro or, or seriously organized amateur, of, of playing football for women and by women never kind of really went away after this. I mean, this is this is maybe arguably the biggest sort of national effort at, at that time, right? But it seems like there, there's been a diaspora of these leagues on a regional and semi-pro level that have really kind of never really kind of gone away. 
Right. That's right. They're all like every city, you know, you talk about women's football. That's, you know, people say, what? There's still a little, and I said, there's a, there's a women's football team in your city. I'm sure of it, you know, and, and wherever you go, there's, there's a women's football organization and there is one in Columbus now. And they, you know, they they play regionally the Pittsburgh and Toledo's and, and there's one in Cleveland. So that, that, yeah, it's, 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 it's never gone away. No, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's taken different iterations to unite on a national level. And, and I think the, the women's football Alliance right now is really interesting in that they run like a tournament, uh, you know, that like that's their season is a tournament that starts with, you know, like 16 teams and nationally, and it kind of culminates in the, at the, you know, the Super Bowl at, at, in Canton, you know, before the, uh, the NFL starts, I think that's a, that's a pretty good model that gets, a, that's getting a lot of support from national sponsors and, ESPN covered their game this year. So um, it, it's just, you know, they, they still have to, you know, get those stories out and get the, you know, the, 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 the fans to, you know, follow it at a level that, you know, it's, there's no reason that they, you know, that audiences can't and, and shouldn't and enjoy and, and appreciate what these athletes are doing. It's also interesting to see too, how the, the legacy male, pro leagues uh, do or don't support right i mean major league soccer has had its dalliances with women's soccer over the years I'm, there's kind of a maybe a, a loose relationship now maybe with a stadium or two um but you know you look at the nhl with the uh i know they need, they changed the name from national women's hockey league to something else i can't remember off the top of my head uh certainly the nba has been nurturing the wnba for years you wonder where the NFL could come again, perhaps, in all this now. With all due respect, the NFL doesn't have to do anything anybody else wants them to do, right? Because they're the NFL, for God's sakes, right? So nobody tells them what to do, and they can kind of call the shots. But but I do know, for example, the NFL has been putting a lot of uh, promotional muscle against this um, flag football thing as a supporting mechanism. And I'm not saying that, that that's the only way women could play at the top level of professional football again but it, it clearly could be a, a conduit uh, among other things maybe i i don't know i just wonder what could come especially given how relatively supportive the media has become and how relatively easy it is to stream and or you know basic cable channel cover women's sports and, and make it economically viable yeah those are good points that's that, that that's kind of the whole the whole thing right there how do you get how do you get a network to buy in how do you get the coverage uh, flag football is, is, is that an option? I know, you know, Russell Wilson, uh, is, is a real big supporter of women playing flag football and has put a lot of, you know, a lot of support behind that initiative. He's, you know, he's supportive of women athletes playing this game at that level. Um, will it lead to, you know, appreciation of the next level? I don't know. Um, it, it stands to reason. And, and it seems like those are all, you know, um, you know, potentially, you know, conduits to to, you know, building that so, you know, coveted audience. Hell, it might be mm -hmm. the savior of the male, the men's game, given all the concussions and all that kind of stuff. There you go. Yeah, that and all the bad press that the NFL has to deal with now, like like, you know, um, not only with injuries, just, uh, you know, I don't know, just it's uh, um you don't see that in, in the you don't see that in, in the WNBA and in, in the in the uh, you know the soccer leagues and and uh, it seems like that's a I don't know there there's stories that are there and they just uh, you know need to get out and and 
I don't know. That's one. That's also part of the, the storyline of the book. Is that you know, you deep delve in, delve into the stories of of these women who did this these amazing things, and you know, I hope that they uh, hope that readers have a, an appreciation and a uh, and a new new kind of uh, insight on on what it takes to be a professional football player, whether you're a man or a woman. All right. Here's my last question, and then I'll let you promote. Okay, uh, unabashedly. So, where where do these trophies live, and or where is the official sort of place where one can pay one's respect and or revel in those championships? Uh, it's not like there is a a, a, a fledgling or, or a, an existing pro team where there are you know, reunions or, or throwback uniforms. And there's no natural place, it seems. Right. No, no, there really isn't. Uh, where it exists is in. Uh, in, in in the players' closets, and they still keep their helmets, their jerseys. They show up to events wearing their jersey, their tattered, old, worn '70s jerseys. You know, they 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 have you know, of course, their their all their memorabilia from the game, from the from the play, from the, those those days. There's one trophy. That's what we've located. One trophy, uh, and th- there was evidently a flood in Bill Stout's basement that that wiped out and one at least one of the trophies and others in the 80s you know at that time that the story was kind of buried and so you you know you researching it and 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 um you know bringing the story out from from the dead so to speak it's it's uh you know you find you know moments like 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 oh we lost that or or there's I'll tell you one thing. We're, we're you know, we always, I always look for footage of of games, and uh, and 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 since you know the story has come out, you know, we found footage of the Dallas game, uh, the Dallas game in February of 1973, which is always like a, a holy grail. Like I want to see that game. I want to see it. And it was Olivia Kwan. You mentioned her, who who tracked down um, one of the Dallas players and and found some great footage. So, you know, maybe I'm hoping the more people know about the story, I think people will come out of the woodwork and say, Oh, I have this footage or I have this relic from this game from, you know, that, that I just, I, I love all that history. So hopefully it'll come out. But um, as for a central location, there's really not, it's really kind of uh, really, or it's in my basement and, and all the research that I've done throughout the years. Okay. Well then where should it reside? Should it be in the pro football hall of fame? Should there be, yeah, I, I don't. I'm just not familiar with the la- the latest sort of versions of the halls of fame and stuff. But it should so something in in Toledo proper. I mean, you'd think that yeah. it should be somewhere, yeah, right? Sure, mm-hmm. there should be. It should be yeah, Toledo somewhere. I, I like that idea. Let's let's put it in Toledo. Let's put it. Have a square. Uh, there's a little you know local history museum in Toledo that has some of the history there. Um, you know, they were in the Hall of Fame in 1981. The, uh, you know, Pro Football Hall of Fame had a little diorama, like kind of, a, you know, a little kind of in the corner, like, hey, there's women playing football. And then right in the great state of Ohio where football was born. So, you know, it was there. It it did exist there for a time. And then history kind of came and swept it away. And, and uh, perhaps it belongs back there, uh, maybe featured a little more prominently. So um, that's a good question. I support that. Yeah, and that that of Linda Jefferson as well, right? I mean, uh, if she was sort of the uh, the hallmark of this league and perhaps its um, most famous face, certainly for the team, uh, if not for the league, uh, you wonder where she should be also hallowed and celebrated and remembered and 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 feted. 
Yeah, I agree. And and she should be um, celebrated and hallowed, although she would always give credit to her teammates. You know, she she's, you know, a very humble champion, even though she'll, you know, a, a fierce competitor. She always gives credit to her teammates and, and wouldn't expect, uh, you know, the limelight on her. She would want the whole team to be honored and the coaches. That's another thing they, you know, the players all really looked to their coaches and said they they got us ready so it, it really was a total team effort according to them so yeah the whole team should be hallowed okay um tell me about the book i know it just came out um are you also part of this documentary that came out a, a few months prior and and all of it together what else are you doing to promote uh, those things, that thing, and or the, the rest of the story going forward? And is there a screenplay to be had out of all this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the documentary is out. It's available. It was made from uh, a, a local company in Toledo. I wrote it with the, with, uh, with the help of the coach's son, Guy, and uh, it's it's out there. It's been in a couple uh, couple uh, venues. It was at a sports film festival here in Ohio last year, and the producers are attempting to, you know, get distribution of, and it's called "We Are the Troopers." Just as the book is, the book is out. You can get it anywhere you buy books, and um, I, I recommend that. I recommend, you know, Frankie De La Creta's book and, and Lindsay Dark Angelo's book, and, and there's another book coming out later about uh, breaking barriers uh, by an Ohio, another Ohio writer. So there's a lot out there that you can you can follow. Um, certainly, "We Are the Troopers." You can. Like I said, get that anywhere and then follow up with a with a, hopefully, you know, watch the documentary. Is there a screenplay? Yes, sir. It's like I said, it's, it began as kind of a, a, a screenplay, a, a, you know, a version, of, you know, uh, the marketers at Hachette who published the book have used kind of like a league of their own meets, you know, uh, Friday Night Lights as a way to kind of put the book out there, put the story out there and then has a certain hook to it. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. And, um, you know, maybe someday you can you can then watch the movie, too. But um, I guess it starts with the books. All right. Major interestingness there. Uh, the book and the film. Two things you must seek out. Uh, the book uh, is just out. Uh, it is called We Are the Troopers, the Women of the Winningest Team in Pro Football History. Uh, that is uh, published by Hachette Books, uh, and it is available wherever you find good books, uh, including uh, Amazon and all those other places. Uh, the most convenient way and uh, maybe the most uh, helpful way for us in this little podcast is to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 276 with Steve Guinan, and you will find a uh, not only a description of the show, but also a convenient link uh, to Amazon, probably the fastest place to get said book. Uh, and it is available not only in hardcover, but also in Kindle and audiobook form. Uh, and uh, by clicking through the link there, we'll get a couple of shekels uh, or pennies or nickels, uh, really not much more than that frankly, uh, of referral love uh, for you doing so. Yeah, regardless of the manner in which you buy this book, you should go out of your way to find a copy and get it. Uh, you will enjoy it. It is very well written, I will say. Uh, and even if you don't fancy yourself as a women's football 
uh, aficionado, I think you'll find the story uh, intriguing. I, I think it's frankly worthy of um, of, a, of a, a streaming series or maybe even a movie. Uh, I think Steve referenced uh, his uh, his uh, belief that uh, if such a, 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 a creation is to be made, it's it's sort of a, a a league of their own meets Friday Night Lights, and I don't disagree uh, for sure. Um, the movie, it's a documentary. It's called We Are the Troopers. Um, it's not fully available yet. I think you can search online and find a few clips from it. And I know it's had a couple of uh, debuts and uh, and uh, showings at uh, some various theaters in and around the Toledo, Ohio metropolitan area. But uh, keep an eye and an ear out for it. We'll certainly let you know here through our media channels and, and whatnot. Uh, but uh, as Steve intimated, uh, the... Um, distribution of this film somehow through hopefully some streaming platform more readily available will uh, will be uh, there sooner rather than later. So, um, And you can follow Steve, by the way, on Twitter at S. Guinan. That's S-G-U-I-N-A-N, at S. Guinan on Twitter. While you're on the Twitter, why don't you uh, make sure that you follow us as well. We're at Good Seats Still there on the Twitter. Uh, we're also uh, posting on a regular basis on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you will also find some similar posts on Facebook at our little uh, destination there at uh, Good Seats Still Available uh, as well. Uh, our email, as previously uh, uh, mentioned, is uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, again, the website, goodseatsstillavailable.com, the locus for everything about this show. Right now, it's literally just the uh, posting of every single stinking episode we've ever done. Uh, great place to uh, graze and browse uh, and get a feel for the show if you, you're new to it. But of course, the best way is to subscribe and or follow wherever you get podcasts. It's universally available uh, and uh, it's the best way, the quickest way to get uh, every ounce of weekly goodness we uh, try to produce for you uh, and send your way through the interwebs uh, as we do each week. All right. Thank you uh, kindly for listening. Thank you kindly to our pal, Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Thank you, sir, as always. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. God willing. And uh, take care, everybody, and be safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.